And uh, we're just thankful that Dr. Mayhew's here. He's got quite a resume, started out as an officer in the Navy, uh, met our song leader at Ohio State University, Al Nettlingham, who's chairman of the Elder Board. That's our connection here. And he ended up marrying Al's sister, B. B. we welcome you today as well. Thankful that you could come along with, uh, with Dr. Mayhew. For many years, he's been on faculty at the Master's Seminary and been a, a counterpart and associate of Dr. John MacArthur. Let's welcome Dr. Richard Mayhew, please. Well, then, thanks for that introduction. I, I left all my West Virginia jokes at home, but I might have to pull a couple out after that introduction. He... Uh, must have a hearing problem, because when we talked about Q&A, I'm the one that have the questions, and I was going to see how well you were taught, and if you couldn't answer my questions, I was going to see if he could. So that's the way the Q&A is supposed to work, not the way he explained it. But uh, the cards are there, and if I raise more questions than I answer, feel free to write it down, and I think we're going to intersperse those with uh, each of the sessions. Let me first of all say thank you for coming out on a Saturday. There's a lot of things you could be doing today. And uh, my recurring worst nightmare is I'll go somewhere to speak and nobody will show up, which uh, from one perspective could be a blessing, but it wouldn't be for me. So uh, thank you for prolonging that kind of agony in my life. It hasn't happened yet, and uh, we'll pray that uh, that won't occur in days to come. There's a lot of material we're going to go through today, maybe more material than you're used to going through or want to go through. So I put it in writing for you, and uh, in our first uh, several sessions this morning, there are prompters in your notes. We'll be turning to lots of Bible verses because it's not important what I think. It's crucially important that we understand God's mind and what God has said and what it means by what it says and how it applies to our life. So we'll be moving through that this afternoon when you're a little weary uh, and you've had lunch and uh, you're yawning and it's not because of the teaching, it's because you stayed up too late last night or whatever, had too much sugar at lunchtime, then the notes are pretty much verbatim and you can sort of snooze through the session, take them home, read them later, and uh, you'll be in great shape. Well, the assignment that uh, they gave me was to uh, teach on spiritual warfare and Satan. So that's the bullseye for the day. Unmasking Satan, which is the title of a book I've written, is uh, the title of our seminar for today. And uh, during the day, we're going to cover several subjects, and you'll you'll be able to see that as your notes unfold. From now till about uh, 10.20, and everybody will want to break by 10.20, I know. So we've got that in mind. We're going to talk about the enemy Some of you maybe know more about Satan than you'd ever want to, and others of you maybe don't know as much as you ought to. So we're going to take just a brief overview of the person of Satan, who he is, and what he's all about. Secondly, we're going to talk from about 1040 till lunchtime about the battlefield. Where is he active uh, in life? Uh, What is it that he's all about? And then when we come back... um, We're going to, one, talk about his battle plans, and then we're going to talk about Christian countermeasures, and that is uh, if he is as active as Peter said he was, or as it was reported in the book of Job that he's roaming about throughout the earth, then uh, what can you and I do, what has God provided us with, that uh, we might not only sing about victory in Jesus, but we might have victory in Jesus in the life that we lead. And then we'll finish up. People have a lot of questions about demons, and I'm not going to... We don't have the time to answer all the questions about demons. But the most important question, and the one that I'm asked around the country most often, is can true believers be indwelt by demons with the need for demons to be cast out? And I want to deal with that in some detail. The answer to the question is no. True believers can't be indwelt by demons, and therefore they have no need for demons to be cast out of them. But uh, we'll go into detail and support all of that uh, biblically. So you're all set. You're ready to go? Your Bible is sort of warmed up and limbered up, 
And let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, which will be somewhat the theme for uh, our time for the entire day. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, the Apostle Paul had been uh, correcting a rather disobedient, fleshly uh, church, and he was dealing with forgiveness in the section of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. But our attention goes to the very end, verse 11, and he's explaining why he's giving them instructions on why a Christian ought to forgive another Christian. And a Christian should forgive another Christian, among other things, he said, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now, that's what's called a pregnant passage. The longer you think about it and the deeper you go, it gives birth to a new and expanding thought. And that's really the outline around which we're going to uh, frame and form our remarks today. We're going to take a look first at the word Satan, Satan, in both the Hebrew text of the Old Testament and the Greek Testament of uh, the New Secondly, we're going to look at uh, the battlefield, which I'll tell you right now. The battle is fought between your two ears. There's about a three-pound blob called a brain there, and that is Satan's primary battlefield, and it's taught throughout the Scripture from beginning to end, and most Christians don't have a clue about it. And uh, we'll find that uh, in our text in the little phrase that we're not ignorant, and that is if we know certain things and act on them, uh, we can uh, counteract anything that he would throw at us as true believers. Thirdly, we're going to look at Satan's battle plan, and that's found in the word schemes. You maybe remember in Ephesians 6.11, uh, the English word schemes is also used, and they're two different Greek words. We'll talk a little bit about that, but they both relate back to the mind. And then the countermeasure we're going to take a look at the, what he had in mind when he said, in order that no advantage be taken of us. can remember as a relatively new believer, I was in my read through the Bible in a year program. I came to this passage, and I'm reading about it, and I come to verse 11, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And the first thought that came to my mind was, what book in the Christian bookstore did he have in mind? Well, that's a really stupid question if Paul, and he is the author of 2 Corinthians, and it dawned on me early on in my Christian life that what he's talking about is the Word of God, and that if I were to sit down at the beginning and read from Genesis to Revelation, where you'll find Satan uh, dispersed throughout, I would not be ignorant of his schemes, and being knowledgeable of his schemes, while he's an adversary of God and believers, he would not outwit me, and I could counter anything he threw at me by way of lies and falsehoods with the truth of God's word, both in what I know and believe and how I behave in accordance with what I believe. It is a strategically important passage. So all that we say will be an exposition of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. So those of you that are John MacArthur fans, and those that he majors in the exposition and think that I'm going to do that too, that's exactly what I'm going to do. But uh, we're going to go a mile deep in one verse, which uh, John is very capable himself of uh, doing. So that's where we're headed for uh, the day. In order to get your mind uh, going, and uh, most of you look like you did stay up a little too late last night. We'll forgive you for that. Um, we're going to just look at several passages in the book of 2 Corinthians. There's more said by Paul in 2 Corinthians than by any other author of either the Old or the New Testament in this particular book, which is not surprising if you understand how carnal, how fleshly, and how disobedient the Corinthian church was in the midst of a decadent community. The Corinthian community was... Um, 
well, just about like the American culture that we live in today. So you can sort of imagine that. So just if you can't keep up with me, just listen. And uh, if you're like me and love the Word of God and like to get through your Bible and see all that stuff, we're going to race around. We've already looked at chapter 2, verse 11. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, and somebody might be asking, does Satan have uh, intentions for unbelievers? We've looked at uh, that for believers in 2.11, and he certainly does. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, that is to unbelievers. Unbelievers cannot see or understand the gospel because they are blind to the truth and need to be given life and sight by the Spirit of God. Therefore, verse 4, in whose case the God of this world and we're going to come back to that little phrase. Those of you that are asking, is that word God the same word that's used of God in the New Testament is? It's theos. And we're going to talk about that and explain that. The God of this word has blinded. And what has he blinded, does it say next? The minds. Where's the battlefield? The mind. He has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In chapter 6 and verse 15, and you might just kind of pass over that in light of what it says, Paul says, What harmony is Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Belial is an Old Testament term that's used of Satan, and that's exactly what he's saying, is what harmony has Christ with Belial? Answer is, or Satan, answer is, Absolutely none without exception. So therefore, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And the answer is absolutely nothing in terms of embracing who we used to be and the world system or worldview that we used to live in. That's the point that he's making. Chapter 11, verse 3, kind of a surprising passage. How many of you think Paul... Was uh, had phobias. Anybody, you say, well, we're not into psychology, but I understand that. But Paul was, it says in verse 3, I am afraid. It's kind of a striking uh, statement by Paul because we think of him as a, a fearless spiritual crusader for Christ. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve. So he's taken us all the way back to Genesis 3. And we're going to get there sometime today and look at it in some detail. The serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. I am afraid that, what's the next little line? Your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. If you want to know what happened in Genesis 3, Paul just told us in a broad summary. And if it happened to Eve... In a perfect environment, before sin entered into the world, even though we're redeemed, we still live in a world that's polluted by sinful people and by sin. And the same thing can happen, but it doesn't have to happen. Just uh, down at the bottom of the page in the passage that you're probably more familiar with, Paul talking about false teachers says in verse 13, "...for such men are false apostles." That is, not everybody who calls himself apostle so-and-so is a true apostle of Jesus Christ. Deceitful workers. There are religious workers who are teaching lies and deceit, but they're calling them the truth, says Paul. They're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder. Don't be surprised. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. If you're expecting Satan to show up and you know that he's there because he's going to be in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork and a long tail, forget it. Uh, he's going to show up in clerical garb. He might even have a MacArthur Study Bible under his arm and claim that he's on the staff of Grace Community Church, disguising himself as an angel of light. And that should make us uh, exceedingly uh, sober and alert and aware because it's not always easy to tell the difference between a true representative of Christ and a false representative of Christ 
who is deceitful and disguising himself. And we'll talk about that later. Therefore, verse 15, it is not surprising. So don't be amazed. It is not surprising if his servants, that is Satan's servants, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end shall be according to their deeds. And uh, we'll discover what that's like in Revelation 20 when we get there. And then finally, uh, somebody might be asking at this point, all Paul knows about Satan, he knows intellectually. But that's not true. It says in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12, a passage you would know well, that because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, that is the revelation that Paul had when he was caught up to the third heaven, which made him a fairly uh, remarkable person, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. That word for thorn means uh, a gigantic spear. It's not some little itty-bitty thorn on a small rose bush Paul's talking about, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger or a servant of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. So much it was for him, so painful, so impairing. He says in verse 8, concerning this I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So you can imagine how overwhelming that was And then the wonderful truth in verse 9, and he said to me, that is, God said to Paul, quote, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul responded, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Just the opposite of the way of uh, most people who call themselves religious operate. So that's a great survey, not only the elements in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that we're going to look at, but what Paul has to say in those six particular verses gives us a, uh, just a very decent survey of uh, Satanology, uh, as it were. But we want to go into the notes, and we're going to fly in the midst of uh, those notes and look first at the person of Satan. Just uh, take a look at a number of names that are given to Satan throughout the scripture to give you an idea that uh, he's meaner than the junkyard dog. The junkyard dog doesn't even begin to describe the depth of uh, depravity and uh, awfulness of him. Then I'm going to talk just a little bit, and again, we're just going to look at scripture. The purpose of Satan, which you might have guessed by now with some of the terminology I've used, is spiritual warfare. Make no mistake about it. Satan's intent and activity is not passive. It is active. And we're going to discover by virtue of his names, by virtue of his purposes, by virtue of his practices, that Satan is an adversary of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and everyone who dearly loves them and have put their faith in him. Uh, It is a a battle unlike any battle that's ever been fought on the planet. Uh, It's global. It's cosmic. It's been going on since Genesis 3. It'll continue to Revelation chapter 20. And there's no way that we can get out of it, but there is a way that we can be victorious in it and ultimately be on the winning side. Give you a crash course on the book of Revelation. You ready for this? You can do all of Revelation in two words. Anybody know what the two words are? No. Anybody else want to try? You're half right. No? Not exactly. Need to be more specific. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. That's the book of Revelation. Uh, So I read the end of the book. I know how this deal is going to turn out. No matter what it looks like right now, how awful it looks in our nation around the world, Jesus wins. So let's turn in the Word of God to many, many passages, and let's turn in your notes to pages two and three, page one being the title page, if I remember the pagination 
that was done in that. Satan has a number of interesting names, and the most common name for Satan, I think in our own vocabulary, or the number of times that it's included in the Scripture, is the name Satan, S-A-T-A-N. In the Hebrew language, it's spelled that way. The Greek language, it's spelled that way. We just carried it over into English. Anybody know what that means? Enemy or adversary. He's not a friend. He's not a companion. He is an arch enemy of God, God's purposes, and God's people. What's another very common name for Satan that we would know? Flip Wilson popularized it. Wilsonian theology called him what? The devil. What does devil mean? Anybody know what devil means? Accuser. He's a slanderer or he's an accuser. He not only is an adversary... But in his adversarial experience with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and believers, he not only will accuse us of what is true, that's bad enough, but he's going to make up accusations that aren't true. Satan, adversary, devil, accuser. Now, he's got other names. The Word of God calls him a serpent. And you say, well... It doesn't say devil or Satan in Genesis 3, so how do we know the serpent in Genesis 3 was Satan? Anybody know the answer to that question? So I told you, I was going to ask the questions and look to you for answers. And Van, you better be shaking in your boots because I don't see any hands in the air and it's coming to you next. Okay, Revelation 12 and 20. Okay. Exactly. That's how we know that that serpent wasn't just some slithering snake that somehow conned Eve into what he conned her into. Serpent. And you can look at all the negative characteristics of a snake and get the big picture. Uh, His poison is injected into our brain, and it's by virtue of what we think that's contrary or a lie when compared with the truth of God. Uh, He's called a tempter in Matthew chapter 4. We all know Jesus' temptations in the wilderness, and that's where we would find that. Paul calls him a tempter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5. We wouldn't be surprised when we turn to Matthew 13 and that great chapter on the kingdom parables to find that he's called the enemy. He is the enemy. And that's exactly what we'd expect to find if someone whose name was Satan, or adversary, he is the enemy. Uh, He's also called the evil one, compared to Christ, who is the righteous one. Whatever is true of Satan is just the opposite of God. Whatever is true of God, Satan will mimic, making you believe it is like God, when in fact it's just the opposite of God. As a matter of fact, the ancient fathers used a a, a verb that we're not too familiar with, probably more familiar with the noun. If you go to the zoo, you can go to the monkey house or the ape house. But the verb is to ape. And the fathers used to talk about Satan aping God. And when you go to the monkey house at the zoo, what do you try to get the monkeys to do? You acting like them so that they'll act like you, right? Making faces and all sorts of... And that's where that idea comes from. Monkeys like to imitate what it is that they see. Only Satan's purpose is not to be like God. It is to make you think he's like God when he's just the opposite of God. In John chapter 8, most interesting passage that will take us again back to Genesis 3, although uh, the Lord Jesus doesn't talk about Genesis 3 explicitly. He does implicitly in John chapter 8. He's in the midst of uh, those who call themselves the people of God, the Jewish nation, and particularly the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're having a dialogue. And Jesus said, you are of your father the devil. Try that at the local ministerium sometime and see how that goes over. And you want to do the desires of your father, and he was a murderer from the beginning. 
and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. If you want a definitive, absolute statement about Satan, you've found it in John chapter 8, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth, for there is no truth in him, and whatever he speaks is a lie. He speaks from his own nature. He is a liar, and he is the father of lies. Does that sort of paint the picture? Get the big picture? I mean, Satan is nothing but evil, nothing but awful, nothing but lies, nothing but death, and wanting to impose it on the entire world to usurp God's kingdom from God and become the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, again, it's good we know the end of the story. Jesus wins. And Jesus is King of King and Lord of Lords. Remember what Peter called him in 1 Peter chapter 5? He is a roaring what? Lion. And you've seen lions at the zoo, right? And might or might not have an idea. You're probably watching National Geographic or the Discovery Channel would have a better idea of the predatory nature of lions. B and I years ago were at Kruger Park in South Africa and uh, to see lions in the wild, and uh, a whole pride came right around our, our car. There had to be 10 or 15 lions right outside the window. And uh, the last thing you wanted to do was roll down your window and say, nice kitty. Uh, they're muscular, the teeth in their mouth, the claws on their feet are just absolutely incredible if you're in the car and you can enjoy what you're watching. But that's the figure that... God, through Peter, used to describe Satan. He is roaming about throughout the earth, seeking whom he may what? Devour, which is what lions do to those that come within their clutches. Uh, Revelation 12.9 says he is a deceiver. If anybody at this point was wondering, uh, we saw that uh, in Paul's description of him in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He is called a dragon. And uh, probably the, the closest thing that we've got today are some of those uh, Kimona lizards that uh, are absolutely, they make alligators and crocodiles look like little baby uh, serpents themselves. Just something that is uh, atrociously awful. He's a master disguiser, which goes along with his deceit, Second Corinthians 11. We mentioned he's a devourer, First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. We learned in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 11, that he is a schemer. He's going to try and lure you or trick you into coming to his side or to his cause by making it look as much like Christianity or something that's going to honor God as is truly possible. And most people are not too discerning or know how to tell the difference apart from knowing the Word of God. Knowing the Word of God is the great equalizer. And then the last little name in your notes uh, that I'll give you, and we're going to look at that at another session in more detail. But in John 12, 31, and we read it in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he is called uh, the God of this age, and it is theos, or the ruler of this world. Uh, there's a sense in a temporary way that he deserves both of those titles. And I'm going to leave it where it is for right now, and we'll come back and uh, explain how he can be called the God of this world. And I just would add, so you're not confused till we get there, because he's called the God of this world does not mean that he is deity. He is not deity. He is a created being. So there's no deity connected with the word, but it is the same word, the God of this world. I asked myself if I could just have one word to describe Satan. There's a lot of words we just got finished using, and they're all biblical. But it would be the word sinister. He is spiritually sinister. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, do you remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2? That all of us, at one point in our life, or it could be even this morning, were dead in what? Our sins and our trespasses. 
Uh, we were dead to the things of Christ. We were blind to the things uh, of Christ. And Satan wanted to keep us that way. And if God had not intervened, he's not intervening on that thing either. That's not a call from heaven to correct my teaching. I can guarantee it. If God had not intervened in your life and my life and expressed his sovereignty in accord with his will, I don't care how many PhDs you have, I don't care how many times you've read through the MacArthur Study Bible or agree with all the notes, you would still be dead in your sins and trespasses. Satan is in the business of suppressing the truth so people who are dead and need life won't find it on their own apart from God and who are blind and will never see the truth apart from God giving them sight. And once you see it, you can't resist it, and you will embrace it and wonderfully be uh, born from above or born again, as John and uh, talked about the, the uh, conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and be given a life that's not temporary or life that you can undo, but given life what? Life that is eternal. God is not an Indian giver. He does not take back what he gives. What he gives, you can't abandon. And what he gives is forever. Just ask my wife. She doesn't celebrate birthdays anymore. And uh, it's not because of her young age that she doesn't celebrate birthdays. It's a very spiritual reason. And her theory is, and the theory happens to correspond with the truth of the word of God, and that is, if you have eternal life, who's counting? So why have a birthday? <laughs> Who wants to spend all the money for an infinite number of candles? Uh, you'd be buying candles from now till Jesus comes and still wouldn't be on top of it. That is the person of Satan. He, is, he embodies from top to bottom a person who is spiritually sinister, And he wants to replicate that in the whole human race. And as a matter of fact, if God doesn't intervene and hadn't intervened with the death of Christ on the cross, the whole human race, from the garden to whenever God pulls the plug, would be a disciple of Satan. And that's how wonderful and majestic Uh, God's grace, God's redemption is in saving us from the clutches of Satan in a process that was begun uh, in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Well, I suggested it was a cosmic conflict. I suggested that it was a a, a battle royale, and I want to prove it in moving from Satan as a person. I, I think we get that one down pat, right? There's just nothing good about Satan, so says the word of God. Let's take a look at his purposes uh, on earth. And uh, everything that Satan does, everything that Satan says, is pointed in one direction, and it is spiritual warfare. Make no mistake about it. Regardless of uh, what it's called, what it looks like, how it feels, what it smells like, how it's defined how many books are written about it, telling you how wonderful it is. Anything but the truth of the Word of God is a lie, and it is aiding and abetting the enemy of God and would be called spiritual treason. What do we do militarily for somebody who aids and abets the enemy and is a traitor? What do we do with them? Yeah, we shoot them at sunup or hang them at sunup. And who wants to be a traitor to the cause of Christ? Answer, almost the whole human race. Apart from those who now are alive in Christ and those who have sight in Christ and know the truth. But just to make the point, I've listed a number of passages there and don't want to uh, uh, insult your intelligence, uh, but I purposely just gave you the 
passages. You can look them up yourself and we can kind of move along. Second Timothy 2.4. And Paul tells Timothy that he needs to be a good soldier in his ministry. Military terminology is used throughout the scriptures. So uh, those of us who've had a military background maybe have a little bit of a sense, but it's only a little bit of a sense of what it's all about. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul said, I've what? I, I've fought the good fight. He was a warrior. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. If you ever want an illustration of what guerrilla warfare is all about, uh, it's Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. When the enemy showed up, dressed in such a way that his opponent thought he was a friendly and not the enemy. That's what guerrilla warfare is all about. Revelation chapter 19 and 19 uh, would talk a little bit and portray conventional warfare when Christ comes out of heaven on a white horse with the armies of heaven following him. That'll look in a sword uh, that's called the word of truth in his hand, and on his thigh, the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Ephesians 6, verse 11, if you're dressed for success in the kingdom of God, you'll be wearing what? Spiritual armor, the whole armor, the whole panoply of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and uh, verse 4, Paul talks about the weapons of our warfare. And if we were to go through that particular passage, the weapons of our warfare... Uh, is this book that we have. It is truth, and it is truth that reprograms our thinking so we think like God and not like Satan and his world system. Uh, That would be enough, but let me just give you a few more so that we sort of have a sense of what the Word of God would teach. 2 Corinthians 2.11, we've already talked about strategies, and in another session we're going to talk about strategies and tactics, strategies being kind of a a broad-based idea, and tactics very specifically, how do I carry out that idea, and uh, we'll see what those are. I've got those in some detail in your notes. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, which is obviously a very um, important passage If you're uh, putting on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the the schemes, the Greek word there is methodeos, and we would get what English word for methodeos? Method, yeah. It's just a a method, a very specific approach to whatever it is you're doing, in this case, spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, we've looked at that. He's disguising himself as an angel of light, and what do we call that? Black Ops, I think, is what they call that. It's what uh, SEAL Team 6 calls it today. We might call it uh, covert operations is another way to put it. When Satan comes, he doesn't announce himself. Uh, He shows up in a manner that you're not expecting, at a time that you're not ready for him, and with a message that's designed for you to think he's a friend and not the enemy. Um, Ephesians 4.8 talks about Christ taking captives which means that you're on the side of Satan at some point in your life, and Christ has rescued you by taking you captive to the cause of heaven. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 goes back to the mind. It talks about the destruction of fortresses, that is uh, mental fortresses, that are fortified against the truth and protecting lies until our redemption. And 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and we're going to look at a number of passages along that line, tells us that Christ leads us in his triumph. And it's a a wonderful picture of a Roman general returning home from uh, the war. And he's been a victorious general in the war, and he is uh, given a a marvelous, just uh, indescribable victory parade through Rome. And that's the, the picture or the analogy of what it's going to be like for you and me to be a part of the army of Christ who conquers Satan, who overwhelms the satanic kingdom on earth, and we are led in redemptive triumph for all of eternity. If all of that's not enough, if there's one guy that really would know what he was talking about for a number of reasons, any apostle 
It would be Peter. Peter had a number of interesting encounters with Satan. And generally speaking, before Acts chapter 2, they weren't things you'd write home about. Uh, You wouldn't put them in your memoirs or your autobiography, and you'd hope your biographer would have sort of overlooked them or forgotten them. Uh, Tomorrow morning, we're going to look at one of those passages in Matthew chapter 16. Um, Remember in Luke chapter 2, Jesus said, uh, uh, Peter, I I need to tell you that Satan has uh, requested permission to sift you. And you hear Peter saying, well, you told him he couldn't, didn't you? Uh, But that's not the way the story went, and we'll come back to that particular passage. But Peter talks in in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, abstaining from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. I'm not sure you came on a Saturday morning to hear that things are not so peaceful on the planet spiritually. And while maybe you're a pacifist even by belief from a a, a national or physical standpoint, that uh, you are up to your eyeballs in spiritual warfare by virtue of your salvation and your redemption and identifying with Jesus Christ. Uh, That's the unvarnished truth about the world that we live in, spiritually speaking. So the person of Satan is absolutely pure sinister. The purpose of Satan is singularly spiritual warfare. What's his practice like? That's an easy one, and we don't have to look at as many passages and maybe get quite as revved up in it. Whatever it is that Jesus is trying to accomplish and will accomplish, Satan is doing what? Just the absolute opposite. Uh, Not halfway, not sort of, not close to. And and let me just illustrate. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. And what did he say next? I am the truth. And in John chapter 8, verse 44, this is like who's buried in Grant's tomb, so don't panic. What did Jesus say Satan was that relates to truth? He's a liar, and he's the father of lies. Christ is the embodiment of truth, and Satan's the embodiment of what? Spiritual lies. Boy, you're a really bright group. I, I like bright. You're like the students at the Master Seminary. They're uh, all bright. By the way, I saw Matt White van before I left, and he said to say hello. He's got a big smile on his face and full of enthusiasm. And I, I think he's recruited three other graduates from Appalachian Bible College, to, and we want to continue to recruit guys from ABC. A lot of other places they could go too closer to home, but we sure would welcome any that want to come out uh, our way. Jesus is in the process of revealing the truth, and Satan is in the process of concealing the truth. That'd be another way to put it. I am the way, the truth, and let's see if your pastor knows. What's, what's the rest of the van? But, but there he goes. We'll give him an honorary degree at the Master's Seminary. He is the life. He is the life giver. Apart from him, we would be dead in our sins and trespasses. And let's go back to John 8, 44, just to cover familiar territory. He not only was uh, a liar, but he also was a what? Speak up. They can't hear you. A murderer. Jesus gives life and Satan does what? Takes life. Just just the opposite. If we were to look over in Galatians 5, and, and you know Galatians 5 really well, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit for a believer. But what Paul is focusing on to the folks that are there are the deeds of the flesh. And what he's doing is rebuking the deeds of the flesh in their life and telling them you need to be engaged in the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, The Spirit of God is there to give live spiritual fruit, and Satan's job is to try and spoil it. 
just a couple more that would uh, maybe serve us well. In James chapter 1, kind of an amazing passage, tells us that, that God has a unique purpose for the trials in our life. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you can counter various trials or testings, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, complete, entire, and lacking nothing. So how many of you want to be perfect, complete, entire, and lacking nothing? Now, if your hand's not in the air, that means you're an unbeliever. Every believer wants to be complete, entire, and lacking nothing. And James says we'll get there the hard way, not the easy way. But what's Satan's way in the midst of all of that? Uh, He's not trying us for the purpose of uh, proving us and building us up. He's kind of, it's the same Greek word. It can either be translated trial or temptation, depending on what the purpose for it is and what the end result is. He's doing what? He's tempting us, and he's tempting us not to move towards God, not to be stronger in the faith, not to be more articulate in what we believe, but just the opposite, to move us more into sin, to weaken us, spiritually speaking, and to move us away from the truth. That's Satan. That's what he did to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. And listen, if he'll try it with Jesus, what do you think he'll do to us? I mean, we're no contest compared to Jesus. Just think about that. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, it's just a kind of an interesting little, uh, we almost would think uh, thrown in by Paul, but it was true in his life. He had ministered in the city of Thessalonica, had uh, been run out of town, had uh, gone down through uh, Athens and and on his way to Corinth. Then he got worried about the flock up there, and he sent Timothy. And uh, he says in verse 5, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. And here's another fear on Paul's part. For fear that the tempter, and we know who the tempter is, right? It's Satan, might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. So Christ is is giving us trials to build us up. Satan's tempting us to tear us down. The whole point we're making in all of that, whatever Christ is about, Satan is just uh, the the absolute uh, opposite uh, in all that that he's doing. Maybe one more, and that is that... uh, Christ's purpose in life as it relates to Satan. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says it uh, very, very well and very plainly. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death, talking about uh, his crucifixion, he, Christ, might render powerless him, that is Satan, who had the power of death, that is the devil. No mistake who he's talking about on either the person of Christ or the devil. And Christ is against him, would render him powerless. And that's exactly what happens at redemption. Uh, The blood of Christ would make us alive unto him eternally. Otherwise, what Satan tempted Eve with Remember back before we turned there, what happened in the garden? There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was a perfect environment, and God said to Adam and Eve, do anything you want to do. That's what you've always wanted to hear, right? I like to think about going into a pie shop. And my wife is not saying, Dick, you can't have any pie. And I'm thinking, I can order one of each. And just be in pie heaven. And uh, that's the way it was with Adam and even the garden. They could do anything except just one thing. And that was eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because in the day thou eatest thereof, what's going to happen? You're going to die. And they ate, and what happened? Really? You sure? You're positive. Even though it looks like they lived, they really died, didn't they? they yeah, they died spiritually. They were separated by sin from God. And then they died again when they died physically. 
And had they gone on, apart from God's grace, they would have died eternally and been separated forever and ever and ever from God. God was absolutely right on three fronts when he said, if you eat from that deal, which, by the way, it wasn't an apple. And I didn't get that from exegesis of the Hebrew text. I think it was a uh, maybe a pomegranate. And if it wasn't a pomegranate, it was uh, a kumquat. One or the other. Some people think it's a watermelon, but that's a little too big for a tree. Um, But the point is they disobeyed, and according to God's word in in Genesis 2.17, they died. And everyone who's been born into the human race ever since has been dead in their sins and trespasses and can only be given eternal life, can only be made alive in Christ by faith in him according to the truth of the word of God. That he came, he died, was buried, raised on the third day, and is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for those who have believed in him and one day will gloriously return. And we'll talk about that a little later and develop a little bit of the whole concept of the kingdom of God, which is important to understand if Satan is called the God of this world and the ruler uh, of this age. Christ's desire was to do a good work in our lives, and Satan's desire is to do an evil work in our lives. That's a lot of material, isn't it? And that's only half the material I intended to cover in that last time frame. Um, so, Van, we're an hour late. We might run into a tomorrow morning service at this rate as we go. But you've been sitting for a long, long time. Uh, we're going to take a little break in just a minute, but I, I, I do want to make sure. Everybody would believe that the Bible teaches that Satan is a sinister character. Anybody not believe that at this point? At least that the Bible teaches it? You could agree the Bible teaches it, but you disagree with the Bible, and that's a whole different problem. Yeah, 100% sinister. Would everybody agree that everything that Satan does is encompassed in the term spiritual warfare, waging war against the will of God? Yep, that's what the Bible teaches. And everybody would agree that uh, Satan's practices are satanic, that is, they're adversarial, and he's got a lot of ways that he does it. Well, when we come back, I want to move from where we are. I'm going to, that Roman numeral five protections, there's nobody that's going to die of spiritual coronary disease over the break, is there? I put that in there to look at the other side. If Satan is that sinister, if he's out to get us, and if he's just the opposite of Christ, what hope do we have? And all of those are wonderful passages that tell you. So if you don't take a break, look those passages up. um, Or wherever you go, take your Bible with you for the break and look those passages up. And we'll come back and talk about the battlefield. And I've already given you the clue. The battlefield is where? Right here. But I want you to see biblically, and I'm probably going to do it ad infinitum, ad nauseum, to make sure that we really have it because it's counterintuitive. And a majority of the Bible teaching historically and currently has nothing to do with our mind. And that means that Satan won the victory in that particular point. But we'll come back and develop that. 